0: on with Isaiah 5. We uh, last two weeks have been in the Song of the Vineyard, and um, we looked at the passage in context, and then we spent the last week looking at the use of this passage and the foundation of this passage with other parts of Scripture. So this week we're back to verse 8. Um, let's let uh, let's just pray to start, and then we'll... Um, And then we'll press on from there. Father, we thank you um, that you are a God who speaks to us through your word. And I pray tonight, Lord, that as we go through these words that were written to Judah so many centuries ago, Lord, that even now, freshly, richly, your word would speak to us in our lives at this time. Father, may our heart's desire be you. May we seek satisfaction in you alone. And may we find you here in your word tonight, we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're now uh, through the Song of the Vineyard, and we're in verse eight, when we have a sequence of six woes. In fact, there's six woes and four therefores and in this whole section. And uh, what we're actually gonna do tonight is deal with the first two woes and the first two therefores. But just so you can skim ahead and see the passage, you'll see a woe in verse eight, then a woe in verse 11. Then we have a therefore in verse 13 and a therefore in verse 14. Then the next woe comes in in verse 18, a woe in verse 20, And then they come in quick succession there, woe 21, woe in verse 22, and then we have therefores in verse 24 and 25. And that's really the structure of what we have ahead. And so we'll do the first two woes and the first two therefores tonight. There are a few uh, literary markers that section this off as a a portion of the whole, so that's where we're going to be. So what we're dealing with here, when he doesn't just randomly say, whoa, if you remember our context, what's happening here is we've had the song of the vineyard and the vineyard, as you'll recall, uh, is Israel. And Israel was prepared by the Lord, was set up by the Lord, he did everything right for them. And nevertheless, instead of producing the good grapes that he was seeking, rather it produces these rotten or stinky grapes. Wild grapes, as our versions often call it. And so this, these, these, these uh, disgusting grapes have come about. And at this point, we, we've pretty much just seen it as an analogy. Uh, the last verse we did in verse 7 gave us a bit more of a clue. Uh, he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold an outcry. And so the only clue we've really had as to what this stinky fruit is, has been that there is an outcry for bloodshed, a lack of justice, a lack of righteousness, and then of course the multiple uh, links that we've seen in the uh, related passages to idolatry, which has been saturating in this first five chapters. And so now when we come to the woes, the woe, first of all, the word woe. Some modern versions don't say woe. It's not woe as in what you say to a horse when it's going too quickly, not W-O-A-H, but woe, W-O-E, and some versions, modern versions get rid of it, and I don't like that. I think this is an important word. It is, um, it is a statement of declaration of judgment to come. Woe to you because of this. And then there's going to be a judgment coming. And so the woes really are the statements of why there's going to be judgment and uh, uh, to a degree. And the therefores more are speaking of what's going to happen as a result. So let's look through them and let's see what is the fruit, this stinky fruit that Israel has been producing and why does God hate it and what's he going to do about it. That's essentially what we're looking at. So the first woe, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. And um, joining house to house, well, some people in the, in, in the house trade will do that today. I mean, uh, my, my stepfather, when I first uh, met him, uh, had a house in what in England we called a terraced street. So there was like both sides of the house were attached to houses on the other side. And the old lady next to him uh, passed away and her house was very run down. And he uh, got out a mortgage and bought the house next door and knocked a door through the middle and made them into one big house and made a bit of a profit. Um, That's essentially what's being spoken of here. Not that he's condemned for doing that, but there's a broader context here. And what happened in that time was that there would be landowners who um, who were greedy, greedy landowners. And Mosaic law had um, provisions for people being in debt. And one of the things that would happen if you had debt is that if you had land, you could give your land to a landowner to relieve your debt. The Mosaic, Mosaic law allowed for that. But the Mosaic law also had the the, jubilee year and in the year of jubilee the property would be returned because under mosaic law although the land could be used um, to pay off these debts of certain kinds although it could be used that way it still remained the property of the original owner the land was used but what these landowners were doing is they were essentially taking houses multiple houses and putting them together to make big houses and whether it was literally houses next door to each other, or whether it was more uh, a general sense of knocking down houses and building big houses, what they were essentially doing is taking—if you picture a small village with small houses and small plots of land—remember, it's not like houses today where you have a small garden. It would be a, each, even the smaller houses, would have a larger plot of land because a lot of them were growing their own uh, produce to be able to survive. So smaller houses would have little plots of land, and what was happening is the landowner would come along and essentially take all of that land and put one big house in the middle of it for him and his family, which he had no need for, far more rooms than he needed, and, and then would have a huge amount of land around the outside. And the result of that would be um, is that they uh, dwell alone in the midst of the land. So you had multiple houses, multiple bits of land, and now they alone, these people have, these landowners, have them living alone in this land with all the land around them. And so what was supposed to be a place for many uh, becomes a place for the very few. Essentially, they're creating their own estates. Uh, stately homes, we call them in England. You know, the, the, the big mansions and stuff that you can sometimes, the older ones, go and pay and have a look around today. But. Um, As a result of that, there is judgment. And before we move on to the judgment in verse nine, let's just take a moment on this. I think, oh, it's so difficult, isn't it? Wealth is a tricky issue to discuss. Um, I was, sometimes we teach, when I teach through the Bible, I come across passages I'm familiar with. And sometimes when I teach them and I try and Um, you know, look at them afresh to be able to preach, they they just strike me between the eyes as if I've never read them before. And when we were teaching through Mark's gospel in the evening, the the passage that spoke about um, how it was harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, really struck me in that we, when we think of difficulties in our faith, things that will cause us to stumble, things that will cause us to struggle, we don't really think in those terms particularly in the Western world, particularly in America, and probably particularly in California, um, and it's a tricky subject. And it's hard to look at verse eight and to know exactly how to apply it. Now, if you're a landowner who's bought a couple of houses and put them together, um, I don't think that this condemns you. I think the context is, is, is different than just applying it in a broad sense. But I think equally we would be remiss to skim over this and to somehow say, well, that's the kind of what they did in those days and you know, and we, we don't have that anymore. So we have to find this balance of keeping it in its context and looking at how it applies to us today. And as best as I can understand it, the condemnation here is people who are accumulating unnecessary wealth for themselves at the expense of other people. And again, it's an interesting thing to note because what's happening here is not a condemnation of wealth per se, but it's a condemnation of the exploitation of the poor and people gathering wealth unnecessarily. And Jesus condemned um, this unnecessary gathering of of wealth as well. Um, John Wesley famously said, uh, work as hard as you can, make as much money as you can, uh, save as much as you can and give as much as you can. Uh, it was funny. I knew that in my childhood because Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister of England for many years, quoted it, except she missed out the last bit, bit. <laughs> Did, didn't fit, fit her politics particularly. But um, no, I think it's something we need to be aware of. I think that, um, and I'll just throw this out there and leave it, I think sometimes the political wing that the evangelical church finds itself more comfortable in is accused of being negligent to those who are worse off and disregarding them. And I think that those accusations are sometimes wrong and exaggerated, but I think sometimes there can be more than a grain of truth. And I think we just need to watch ourselves and remember that the poor and the vulnerable are constantly in God's thoughts and God's and God's thoughts and God's heart. And if you want to take it right the way through to the modern day, um the place where that should be seen most of all is amongst our, amongst ourselves the bible speaks clearly about how first you know, john talks about how they see the love that we have one for another and that is the measure of us as believers loving one another and so um, I, I think that you know i think that gathering wealth is a great thing if you're gathering to give if you're gathering to do something with but to gather for the sake of gathering, that's part of the condemnation here. And I think the other part is the exploitation. So they're the two key things I think we could take away with it. Gathering for the sake of gathering. Jesus spoke about the man who had the barn full. Remember? He had his full barns and then he died that very night. He gathered it all up and then nothing came of it for him. Building his treasures in this world. And then the other side, the exploitation, the exploitation of the poor. So often the people in this world who become wealthy become wealthy not simply by hard work but by the exploitation of others. And God seriously condemns those things. So there we are. Just again, it's hard to be precise, but that's the best that I can make of it. Verse 9: Yahweh of hosts has sworn in my hearing. It's an interesting phrase as he comes to the reaction to verse eight. Um, first of all, notice that it's Yahweh of hosts. This expression of God, Lord in capital letters. We know that's Yahweh. That's His name. And of hosts is essentially armies. God on, and His angelic realm. God and His armies. And it's talking of God as a uh, um, in His role as one of of uh, a warrior, one of might. And, and I think that we need to see that in connection here, in that you know. You exploit the poor here. You take advantage of the others. You, you, you twist my law so that you can gather for yourselves. I'm against you. That's essentially what God is saying here. And what's the other thing that's interesting to note here, he says he's sworn in my hearing. The my here refers to Isaiah, and literally it says that he has spoken in my ears. It's almost like he's, he's whispered in Isaiah's ears. And it's interesting that uh, this comes at the beginning of this section of chapter five and the previous section of chapter five began with let me sing for my beloved. Isaiah referred to Yahweh as his beloved. There was this, there's this very intimate relationship that Isaiah has with God. And I think that so much of the first five chapters is preparing us and setting us up for the, um, for the calling which would have chronologically preceded most of this in chapter six. And there, there seems to be a few hints here in chapter five as to the intimate relationship that Isaiah had with God. In his generation, he was probably the prophet who um, had the greatest revelation, who therefore had, in, in a sense, the closest relationship with God in a way. And when we get to chapter six, we'll see why that is the case. So the Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing. He's spoken in Isaiah's ear, and this is what he said to him. Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. There you go. It all comes down to the (laughs) ephahs. You read this initially and unless you've got a study Bible, you're like, what the heck is going on here? You don't, you know, it doesn't make sense to us in our terms. What it's saying is, is that the person who has gathered at the exploitation of others and has gathered together their large estate, that their houses will become desolate. They have these, now these made made for themselves, these large, beautiful, grandiose houses. And uh, having made these wonderful houses, they're gonna be desolate. And the reason for that is seen for, there's your explanation, 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath. The bath was a liquid measure. And uh, so you have a certain amount of land and a certain amount of liquid measure that comes in the form of wine. And then you have a certain amount of seed that will produce a certain yield. And just to save you looking it all up and doing your math here, the answer is 10% basically what they've done is they've made this large house in the state, they've got huge amounts of land, now they can have Remember, the wealth is often seen in the yield of your land. You know, you have, in your land, you have vineyards. So now you have more wine. So you can sell that wine as well as consume yourself. You've got large amounts of wheat. You can sell that wheat as well as keeping enough for yourself. And that's where the wealth comes from. And now what have they done? They've got these big estates and it's getting them a 10% of what it should do in regards to its yield. In other words, they have taken for their greed, for their benefit, and God said, you're not having it. You're not gonna have the extra that you took unfairly. And so there is again speaking here of something we've already seen in the first five chapters, which is speaking of famine as judgment, famine on the land, and certainly here on the land that they have taken. And then we come to the second woe in verse 11 woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them they have lyre and harp tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts but they do not regard the deeds of the lord or see the works of his hands well let's look at this woe in a bit more detail so here we have a woe that is speaking of uh, pursuing uh, booze and wine, basically. And we've said this repeatedly, we've seen it in Isaiah, you know, I mean, God plants a vineyard that's going to have a vat to make wine in the earlier part here. So, and, I, and I'm, by the way, I do think that This following immediately after the first seven verses is very telling and very relevant to us. In that God plants a vineyard, the vineyard's gonna produce wine, he has a vat there in the land to be able to to make wine from the grapes when they're harvested. And so clearly there is no issue with wine per se. Um, That is abundantly clear, God wants there to be wine Uh, produced from Israel. The good fruit is called wine. Wine is a positive thing in this context. But you see what the whole broader context of chapter 5 is doing is saying God wanted to see this good fruit from Israel. Good grapes to produce good wine. But what God got was stinky grapes. And can you see how that parallels? that God is produced, here you have grapes to produce wine, that's fine, but then that wine is used badly. You have something that could be used in a feast and could be used as something, and wine more than any other emotion, more than any other um, thing at all that it's associated with in the Bible is associated with joy. And yet here people are abusing the alcohol. And the Bible is very consistent in not condemning alcohol, but consistently condemning drunkenness. And the woe here is to people who are drinking early and drinking late, and they're basically their whole life is a party. Again, I don't think that, I know that some who are more legalistic would look at a verse like this and point, see, look, look how bad alcohol is. But then they look at the next verse and they don't condemn music. And yet in the next verse, you have music there as part of the condemnation. The idea is is that they're more interested in partying and getting drunk than they are on the Lord. And this is the key part to understanding these two verses, is looking at why the condemnation comes to these people. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord, don't regard the deeds of the Lord, or see the work of his hands. And so what they're doing is, is in a sense a form of escapism. It's a sense of escapism. And uh, they, they are hiding themselves away from seeing what God is doing. These people, because they are engaged in life in this world, because they're just enjoying themselves in their flesh, they don't see God's work and they don't see what he does. Their concern is not on him, it's on themselves. And while it clearly condemns uh, drunkenness, while it clearly condemns um, a partying lifestyle, I don't think a party or a, fe- a feast are often celebrated in scripture, but, but in a, as a lifestyle as such, um, more of a hedonism, I guess, in that sense. I think there's a broader application for us here as well because I think that what's happening here, and by the way, you'll see in Amos 6, there is a very similar passage speaking of the combination of drink and the combination of music. And uh, gives us, I think he's building on this, but perhaps we'll turn to that in a moment if we have time. But, but w- w- what's happening here is that their lives are filled with their own pleasures, and as a result, they don't see what God is doing. Now, you might say, well, I'm not a drunken partier, but if we, if we talk about filling life with the pleasures of the flesh to the distraction of the things of God, that's something that I think we can all relate to as a temptation, at least, that there's this Temptation to get lost in the things of the world and to not see what God is doing. It's interesting here when it says they do not regard the deeds of the Lord. The um, the word regard here is in the imperfect tense, which gives uh, an indication of continuity. So they are they are constantly not regarding because they're constantly partying and they're constantly not regarding the deeds of Yahweh and then when it says that the word see is perfect, which talks a degree, to a degree of permanence. So the idea is they are continually not regarding the deeds of God, and therefore they never notice the works of his hand. They don't see what God does because they're not interested in God. They're interested purely in themselves. And so... They fail to see. And I think when this follows on um, from the first woe, I don't want to say definitively, but tentatively, I think we can see a link of them together. That you have these greedy people obsessed with themselves, gathering what they can for their own joy and their own benefit, and they have these large houses with lots of land, and they spend their time partying there, and they disregard the things of God. Perhaps there's a connection there between the two woes. And as a response to these woes, this is what God's going to do. And this is the first uh, of the therefores in the passage. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. This is, this to me is, is, uh, Very fascinating and intriguing verse in multiple ways. Firstly, the the condemnation in a general sense for these woes is that because of this injustice, because of this exploitation, there wasn't justice, there was bloodshed, there wasn't righteousness, there was a crying out. And because of that, ultimately the Jewish people are going to go into exile, the Babylonian captivity. That's going to be what is going to happen. That's part of the reason, part of the reason for the captivity and for the exile. Notice that it says it occurs for lack of knowledge. Now that has to be linked to the previous verse. They don't regard, they're continually not regarding the deeds of the Lord. They're not interested in the things of God. That that would be the equivalent today of people busying about their lives and just And not being bothered about the Bible, not being bothered about what God says. And so the exile that they go into comes because of a lack of knowledge. Now, understand this clearly. The Jewish people had the law. They had the covenants. It wasn't like there was like, oh, if only we'd known. It's not that kind of lack of knowledge. It's not like, you know, somebody didn't give them the missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle. They had everything they needed. The problem was that they weren't concerned with God. They weren't concerned with God's way. They weren't concerned with God's word. They wanted to do things their way. They wanted to live how they wanted to live. And they wanted to benefit themselves and please themselves and not please God. And therefore, this lack of knowledge, them not knowing their law, not they didn't have it, but they didn't know it. They knew the bits that suited them, and they ignored the bits that didn't suit them. And because of that, they went into exile. Now this is incredibly relevant for this generation. Because there is church after church after church around the land, who are picking and choosing from the Bible the bits that suit them, according to the their well-being according to what suits the climate socially of the day and what is acceptable to the world around them. And that is the equivalent today of lack of knowledge. People are reading the Bible and the Bible is saying something very clear and they say, no, it doesn't mean that. And because of that approach and that attitude, Israel went into exile. And notice here, again, we see the repetition of famine and drought as part of that judgment that comes with the exile. We've seen that a couple of times already in these chapters. The reference to, to hunger is, uh, and food has been very common in the first five chapters of Isaiah, hasn't it? It was the promise of the land of milk and honey, you obey God and you get to enjoy the fruit of the land. But if you don't, then you're gonna be eaten, you're gonna be the food, you're gonna be consumed by others. And as a result, they don't have that food and they go hungry. Here it says, and this is another part of this verse that really intrigues me. The honoured men go hungry. The phrase here, honoured men, um, if I was preaching a sermon in England, I think it might be like the, the aristocrats The kind of upper class the the wealthy estate owners that kind of type of person and they will go hungry and then as you see below uh, the multitude is parched with thirst it's not saying that the the rich people are going to have loads of water and no food and the the poor people have food and no water it's just a Jewish way of writing that says look there's going to be famine and drought for the wealthy as much as for the poor now, that fascinates me for several reasons. Firstly, when you're talking about these, um, these people who are honored, the, the, the noble class, what have you, I don't see how you can separate that from the previous woe. You've got a woe, therefore. That links them together. It has to link them together. So you have these people who are wealthy landowners. They've got these houses together. They're having parties. They're celebrating. There's there's them filling up their lives with, with all the things that their wealth allows that satisfies their flesh. And they will end up going hungry and thirsty. That makes sense to me. But the multitude are going to go hungry and thirsty as well. That doesn't make sense to me. The people of Israel who have been exploited are going to suffer under the judgment as well, further. And there are reasons for this. I don't think it's a a problem for me totally philosophically and that God has a covenant with Israel. Israel doesn't keep that covenant. Israel is judged. This is the Mosaic covenant, not like the Abrahamic covenant, like the covenant with Abraham that we spoke of this morning, which was unconditional. The Mosaic covenant with Israel was, was a different covenant and it was very clearly conditional. You obey me, I bless you. you. You rebel and worship other gods and you're going to be cursed. Very, very clear. And so there was that sense of judgment. But I tell you, doesn't this speak truth to us as well? In that, you know, if, if I as a father and a husband sin, and it, negati- it can negatively affect my wife and children. The, the decision you make if you have a position of authority at work. You know, if you're, if you're a boss at work, launders money or, or, or steals from the company and the whole company goes bust, you lose your job too. You know, there are, this, there are decisions and actions that we take that have consequences on others. And, and, I, and, I, and I see this verse as just being a reminder to us of that, that when we make decisions contrary to God and God discipline, disciplines us as believers or judges the unbeliever as a result of those actions at the same time there are others who lose out in the midst of that judgment Israel throughout its history throughout its history the leaders of Israel led Israel away from God and the entire nation is judged and the same is true of workplaces and families and churches where in, you know, somebody preaches bad doctrine and entire churches are affected. When a rejection of scripture and liberalism started to spread like wildfire through churches that had previously been sound in the 18, late 1800s, it happened because the, 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 those of more liberal theology, those who didn't believe the Bible was the word of God, they didn't take the churches. They took, they took the seminaries. They took over the places of education. And then the pastors would graduate from seminary and go off to the churches, and then the churches would be turned. And then this is why you have institutions like Princeton and Yale that were set up to, as Christian places to educate people based on the Word of God that now are completely liberal in that regard. That's why you have entire denominations. John Wesley set up the Methodists precisely because other groups around him were were more liberal. And now the Methodists are predominantly, not completely, but predominantly more liberal in their theology. And so has been the case throughout history. And so the decisions that we make affect others. And it's a good reminder to us of that. So that's verse 13 and it's more of a summary therefore. Therefore, this is the result of what happens in these woes and therefore, the second therefore that we will, uh, we will finish with tonight um, from 14 through to 17 is therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem, her multitude will go down and her revelers and he who exults in her. And so verse 14 makes it clear that this famine and this drought is not simply gonna be something that inconveniences people. It won't simply be something that will be a struggle for people to eat and to drink, but there will actually be large scale amounts of death. That's absolutely clear. Sheol is the place of the dead. It is in all Hebrew uh, scripture. It is the place where the dead go, what we would call hell. It is not used as we would use hell in a church today to speak of the place where only those who are judged go. But in in the Hebrew Bible, Sheol would speak of everybody. When when you die, good or bad, you go to Sheol. It's just the place of the dead where the dead go and, and yet live on. And so Sheol has enlarged his appetite, opened its mouth beyond measure. The picture being created is that the people who are dying are vastly increased. There is going to be physical death as a result of judgment because of these woes, because of this stinky fruit, because of what they've done. The next thing measured is this, the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down her revelers, and he who exalts in her. And that is pointing to the people. And we've seen this balance in the previous verse, the honored men and the multitude. Now we have nobility and multitude. The revelers, that will be the partiers of the second woe, and he who exalts in her. The her here is, I think, Jerusalem. Nobility of Jerusalem, and her multitude, the multitude of Jerusalem, her revelers, the revelers in Jerusalem, and he who exalts in her. In other words, they're trusting in who they are and their Jewishness and that they'll be okay because of who they are and not concerned by the things of God specifically. Be like somebody raised in a church and thinking that they're okay because they're like a Christian family, but not being concerned about the things of God themselves. The word exalt in verse 14 leads us on nicely to verse 15. Man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. We've already seen this whole principle uh, expounded quite thoroughly in chapter 2, verses 9, 11, and 17. Uh, we could flick back there, but... Um, uh, Chapter two, verse nine says, so man is humbled and each one is brought low. Verse 11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of man shall be humbled. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Again, verse 17 repeats verse 11. And so we saw that, and this, guys, is gonna be crucial when we come to chapter six. When we come to chapter six, and Isaiah sees God in that vision. And he says, I saw the Lord sitting uh, sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. It doesn't simply mean that he had to crane his neck up. It doesn't mean, it's not talking simply, maybe as well as, but it's not talking simply geographically or, or, or spatially, probably is a better word. The, the Lord is there lifted up, but rather it's talking of the exaltation of God. And this is a theme of Isaiah that is part of our foundation that we're gonna see played out in chapter six. That man says, I'm gonna exalt myself. I'm going to take these houses, make myself a big house. I don't need 15 rooms, but everybody will know how great I am. I don't need all of this land, but everyone will see how how rich and powerful I am. And so it is that they they are humbled when they've lifted themselves up. They're brought low. The eyes of the haughty are brought low. They look to what they can get for themselves. They look to how they can lift themselves up. And God takes that pride and he crushes it. And he judges them and he pushes them down and he takes it away and guys that principle has never been changed it has never been taken away it is one of those principles that you see throughout the old testament and when you come to the new testament and we see this in james we see this in first peter that the principle is simply repeated that god humbles the proud and he exalts the humble it'll never change and you say, well, I had this neighbor and he was the proudest man you ever, you ever saw in your life. And he was richer and richer till the day he died. Ah, yeah, but what happened when he died? He left it all behind. He took nothing with him. And what waits for him on the other side of Sheol? Would not be good. Oh, you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. but he had this weakness. He was proud and he and he gathered all he could at the expense of other people and he was mean and nasty, but I genuinely think he was a Christian. He was saved. Well, let's for argument's sake say that it was a, an overlooked sin. Let's say that he he produced fruit of the Spirit in other areas of his life. In other ways, let's say he was genuinely saved. Maybe he was a nasty man his whole life and got saved in the last year. What happens? On the other side, is he is he not saved? No, he's saved. But the Bible speaks of those who are saved by as if though through fire. Everything burnt up. And one thing we have to remember is our eternal state is one of is a physical state. It is a physical state. I think it's very easy for us to talk about things like God giving us crowns, God giving us inheritance, um, and, and God, you know rewarding us in the next life, and to see these things in purely spiritual terms. But it's very clear, not just from passages in the Old Testament, but from very clearly said New Testament passages. Paul says, look, you're going to get new bodies. You're going to have glorified bodies. You have to die and lose this body because sin infiltrates it. The the perishable has to go, but then there'll be the imperishable. And Christ is the first fruit of resurrection. We're going to end up in physical bodies. And I think that's something that whatever your eschatology is, is is abundantly clear in scripture for, for us all, that we're all going to end up in a physical state. And therefore, it's interesting to me that we should perhaps look at the Bible speaking of rewards to Christians for eternity in perhaps more physical terms than we do. If you're going to have a body for eternity, where's your body going to sleep at night? What room are you going to be in? What house are you going to be in? How many people are going to live in that house? What will the area be like in which you live? How far will it be for you to go to Jerusalem? I mean, I mean, I often wonder about these things. And I think that there is going to be a sense that whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, whether you experience that judgment in this life or not until the next, that God is always going to humble those who exalt themselves, always. And therefore, we need to humble ourselves before God. Think little of ourselves. Because if we lift ourselves up, and this is the principle, and this is the thing to have absolutely drilled into our minds, drilled into the minds of our children, just something that we just, as an inescapable truth, is that when we lift ourselves up, we make ourselves an enemy of God. It's not about you. It's about Him. It's not about you being glorified. It's about Him being glorified. It's not about you being comfortable. It's about Him using you for His glory. And... too many Christians today. We're so easily captivated by the message of the world that you should be happy, you should be comfortable, that nothing bad should happen to you, that you shouldn't be treated badly, that everything should work out for you. And if it doesn't, then you need to think positive thoughts. And you know everything has to be about you and your good and your well-being. It's not a biblical concept. It's all about Him, and that's what the next verse takes us to in verse 16. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Look at that, and this is by the way one of those one of those literary markers. Look how the, I I said to you that we were going to go as far as verse 17 tonight, two woes and two therefores, because there's some literary markers. Well here's one of them, not the only one, but here's one of them, is that the previous section verses one to seven, the song of the vineyard, the, the analogy that is now being expressed in more concrete terms. It ended with that phrase that God looked for justice and behold bloodshed. He looked for righteousness and behold an outcry. And here we have those two words again. The Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and he shows himself holy in righteousness. Now the implication here is very clear, and I hope we see it. That when God looked at the stinky rotten grapes He wanted to see good grapes, he wanted to see good fruit. What he wanted to see was justice and what he wanted to see was righteousness. But what he saw was bloodshed, exploitation and an outcry from the poor. He didn't see justice and he didn't see righteousness. And here's the implication that when God humbles man, when God brings judgment, when God brings the famine, when God brings the drought, when God desolates the land, when he does that justice is served. The implication is abundantly clear. We either give justice or God gives it for us. If we are unjust, then we'll receive our justice. That's the implication of the text. And that God, in bringing judgment, shows his righteousness. Why would God do this to this person? Why would God allow for this evil? Why would God allow this and that to happen in the world? You know what? One of the answers, not the only answer, but one of the answers is simply this, that we are all contaminated with sin, and the very fact that we're alive at all is the mercy of God. And that when he does bring judgment, and when he does bring tragedy, and when these sometimes things like droughts and things like famines are judgments from God, not always necessarily, but certainly at occasions clearly from scripture. And if you struggle with why God does that, God says, we're not seeing eye to eye here because me doing this is proof of my righteousness. How can we as man look at a tragedy and say that proves that God isn't good, that he isn't righteous. And God says, actually, I think you'll find that this judgment proves I am righteous. It shows my righteousness. It declares my righteousness. How can we get it so wrong? How can the the viewpoints be so different between carnal man and God? And the answer is because man exalts himself. So anything that hurts man, harms man, damages man, treats man badly, anything like that is viewed negatively by the world. But the fact is that the, the very fact that we view things that way is proof of us exalting man, us exalting mankind. And God looks at injustice and he looks at unrighteousness and he brings judgment and in doing so he brings the justice and the righteousness that was missing. Israel, you didn't give the justice I was expecting, I was looking for. You didn't give the righteousness I was looking for. And thus, I will bring justice and I will bring righteousness in judgment. It's essentially what it's saying. And finally, the result of that is, then the lambs shall graze as in their pasture, and nomads shalit among the ruins of the rich." When you hear about lambs grazing in pasture, it sounds like it's a, a, an upbeat thing at the end. It's not at all. Do you remember what happened? And this is the other literary marker we saw at the beginning of the woes. How did this passage start? They join houses together to make big houses. They've joined the land together to make a large amount of land. And what's that land supposed to be used for? For crops. For vineyards, for for producing food for themselves. When we think of lambs, gra- when I think of lambs grazing, I come from a part of England called Kent. Kent, the county of Kent, was known is known as the Garden of England. And there's orchards, and there's sheep grazing. And I would um, I would go for my runs on the country roads around England, and I go past sheep field after sheep field after sheep field, and it was lush and it was green. So I've got to kind of forget about that when I come to look at sheep grazing. When you look at sheep grazing in the scripture, they're grazing in wilderness. They're getting a little bit here, and then they're traveling a little bit further. There's a little bit here. It's them grazing over large amounts of area. It's not like the sheep grazing in England. It's more like the cattle and sheep grazing maybe in um, parts of Australia. Have you ever, if you've ever seen anything about cattle rearing in Australia. It's just this incredibly dry, barren land that you think nothing could live on. And they have this cattle that just basically eat because they have a huge amount of land. So English sheep kind of eat a bit of grass, take two steps, eat a bit of grass, take two steps, eat a bit of grass. They can eat all day with barely moving. But these Australian livestock are traveling miles and miles and miles each day and and often the uh, farmers will use helicopters to keep an eye on them to travel. It's not quite that extreme but it's more like that. So the idea is, is that the land here has become desolate and the land that was going to produce all of these crops has become more of a wilderness just where, where, where animals are just grazing. They're just, it's only good for grazing, which is a negative thing in that context and then it says nomads, I'm not quite sure how the best, nomads is a pretty good translation. I've heard others uh, commentators use the word refugee, um, strangers. The idea is that people who have no home of their own will basically go and live among the ruins of these big houses. These rich people made these houses that were monuments to themselves, to their glory, and to their wealth. And now, essentially there's squatters living in their homes. Their wealth is gone. And there's nothing that takes away wealth than uh, when we come to the time when a uh, a piece of bread costs a bag of gold. And so it is that the judgment comes upon them, at least in this case, for these people comes in their lifetime and in this land. And that takes us to the end of the first part of this. And so we'll come back next week and we'll pick up in verse 18 and we'll look at the, uh, I hope we'll finish off the next four woes and the uh, therefores that follow. But this is the specifics of what they did. And I just, if we leave it with one thought, let's leave it with this one that we want to live our lives for God. We want to exalt him and humble ourselves, to see ourselves as nothing, to see him as everything, and to live our lives out in that way. And if we do that, then we will find that God is on our side. And if these passages of woes and therefores tell us anything, it's that we do not want to be on the other side against God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that even now to us in this day, we can glean truth from your words of judgment to Judah. May we be humble. We live in an era of glorification of man, an era where you are forgotten by so many. How similar we are to the time of Isaiah. May you be everything in our lives. May we be nothing. May we humble ourselves, that you might exalt us in due time. Amen.